My name is Pastor Justin, one of the elders and lead teacher here at Peninsula Grace. We're glad you're here with us. And, um, you know, we sing that song, Come As You Are. In today's text, we're going to talk about why, what that means uh, to come as we are and, and why it is that we can come uh, as we are. So glad to have you here in the building with us. And those uh, live streaming, uh, welcome all together in the name of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. I invite you to follow along in your, on your uh, device or, you know, those old school books, or you can also follow along with the verses up on the screen. Matthew 27, we're going to be looking at innocence and guilt this morning. In the 1960s, there was a boxer um, by the name of Davy Moore. Uh, he was affectionately known as uh, the Little Giant, because at five foot two, he was a short guy, and yet you didn't want to cross Davy Moore. And on uh, March 21st, 1963, Davy was in a fight with a sugar, uh, with, a, with a Cuban boxer named Sugar Ramos. And Ramos defeated Moore. And later that night, after he had done some post-fight uh, interviews, he complained about some headaches. And it was only a little while afterward, he, he passed out that night, and then just four days later, uh, Davy Moore died. Now, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, one of my favorite musical artists, many don't like his voice and his nasally, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. But he's my favorite, so shut it, right? I don't know if pastors are allowed to say shut it, but we, I did, and I'll get an email from the elders. But uh, he's my favorite. I think he's one of the best songwriters ever. But the point is, he wrote a song about Davy Moore, and it was called, Who Killed Davy Moore? And he asks this question, who is guilty of Davy's death? And in the song, everybody deflects responsibility. Not I, says the referee. It wasn't me. Yes, I probably should have fought the, uh, stopped the fight. It got out of hand. But the people, the crowd would have booed me. I couldn't stop the fight. They would have charged the ring. It wasn't me that made him fall. You can't blame me at all. And one by one, everybody says the same thing. They claim innocence. Not us, says the crowd. We just came to see a good fight. We're just the innocent bystanders. Not I, said the manager. Yes, I knew that he was sick and he probably shouldn't have fought, but he told me he was ready to go. The gambler said, it wasn't me. I just bet on the guy. I didn't punch him. And then even Ramos himself, the boxer, says, I might have been the one that hit him, but I was just doing what I was paid to do. He says, don't say murder, don't say kill. It was destiny. It was God's will. And, and by ending with the question, Bob says, who killed Davy Moore? Why and what's the reason for? He wants his listeners to consider the answer. Because really, what is he saying? They were all responsible. There was nobody truly innocent. The referee wanted the crowd to like him, but he kept on going. The gambler profited. The media, the promoters, they were all in on the money. Nobody wanted to stop the fight, even though they knew they should have. But the song, it, it points to an even deeper point that he wants us to realize that our hands aren't as clean as we'd like to think either. I was thinking about this during a tumultuous 2020 as we look at this violent, suffering world, and we want to blame someone. We want to blame the politicians. The right wants to blame the left. The left wants to blame the right. We want to blame the media. We want to blame the police force. We want to blame someone, anybody but ourselves. 
And Gregory Smith, he, who wrote a helpful article on this song, he, he summarized it this way. He said, what if we realize that we're all part of a system, a society that's sick, or I would say sinful, and that we all have blood on our hands? What if we all were honest and said, I killed Davy Moore? Now, in today's story, Matthew, like Bob Dylan, wants us to ask the question, who killed Jesus Christ? Why and what's the reason for? And what we're going to see this morning is he takes us to the scene of the crime where Jesus is about to be killed. He's going to ask the question, who's innocent and who's guilty? And just like in David's death, we're going to hear, not I, not I, said Pilate. The crowd would have booed me, wishing to satisfy the crowd, just like the referee. He did what he did. You can't blame me at all. Not I, says Judas. Yeah, I betrayed him, but I admitted it, right? I, I, I confessed it to the priests, and they wouldn't forgive me. They wouldn't take the blood money back. What could I do? It's not us, said the crowd. Our Jewish leaders were telling us, demanding that we would do it. What, what should we do? And not us, says the leaders. No, no, no. Jesus is the one, the blasphemer. He's guilty. We're innocent. Just like Bob's song, Matthew wants us to each take it one step deeper to see the blood of Jesus on our own hands. Because listen, until we see our own guilt, our own personal, specific guilt and sin in our lives and in the murder of Jesus, we will not cling to him as the one path to life. And Matthew says there's only one person who's innocent in this story. And so we're going to see how everybody else is guilty in hopes that we might cling to the one who's innocent. Let's walk through this chapter together. First, first of all, we see the Gentile leaders are, are guilty. Uh, last week, remember, we saw, if you were here with us, Jesus on trial before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Remember that sham of a trial. But then this week, they're going to hand him over to the Gentile leaders, namely uh, the Romans and Pilate. And in verse 1 of Matthew 27, it says, When morning came... So this is the last day of Jesus' pre-resurrection life. All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So the Jewish leaders, they huddle up and we say, they say Jesus is guilty and he deserves to die. And what do they do? It says they took counsel. They took counsel and Matthew, who has a very Jewish audience, knows that as they hear this phrase of the leaders of the nation taking counsel, they're linking Back to Psalm chapter 2. This was a prophecy about the coming Messiah who we see here to be Jesus. And listen to the language. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? We're going to see this morning the nations raging all throughout the story. People are yelling and screaming and bloodthirsty. And they plot in vain. Verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. There's our language from Matthew against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, Jesus. So the Gentile leaders and the Jewish leaders both judge Jesus as guilty. But what Psalm 2 reminds us of is Jesus himself is the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate authority. God, he who sits in heaven, verse 4 says, he laughs. Oh, you guys are trying to rule the world down there, you little peons? That's cute. I'm God. I'm the judge, and I've given the nations to Jesus. He's the king. He's the judge. 
He's the one who will ultimately decide. In verse 2, we go back to our story. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Remember we said over and over in our last part of the story here, we're going to see this phrase, delivered him over, handed him over, betrayed him. It's all that same phrase. It's turning Jesus over to death. And we're asking the question, who did it? Who handed Jesus, delivered Jesus over And so what we see here is that, yes, it's the Jewish leaders delivering him over to Pilate. But ultimately, what's going to happen as the Jews deliver Jesus over to Pilate to be judged and destroyed? Ultimately, Jesus, who is judge, God is going to deliver the Jews over to the Romans. Remember we said in 70 A.D., There is blood all over the Jewish people as they're judged for rebelling against the Romans. But the Romans aren't going to get off scot-free either, right? Because it's only going to be a couple centuries later that the greatest empire in human history will also be destroyed. And what we're seeing here, the takeaway, at the end of Psalm 2, look at the words, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. What does it look like to be a wise ruler in the world? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, this is the anointed one, Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's saying here, every earthly leader who doesn't recognize God's ultimate authority in Jesus will face his ultimate wrath. And today, God is calling out a people, the church, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the reality is, all who do not recognize Jesus as the true king are just as guilty as the Gentile and Jewish leaders in our story. The Gentile leaders are guilty. But so is Barabbas. Number two, Barabbas. Uh, Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now again, last week, when when we saw Jesus on trial with the Jewish people, what did they ask? Caiaphas said, are you Christ, son of God? Now this was a very Jewish question because what do they want to know? Is this the Messiah, God's son, the chosen one? And if he's claiming to be and he's not, that's blasphemy. But that's, the, the, Pilate doesn't care about that. This is a more of a Roman question he asks. Are you the king of the Jews? He's thinking revolution. See, the Gentile, the Roman people, aren't concerned about their little religious squabbles. All they care about is, is their rebellion against Caesar, the emperor himself? See, the claim to be the king of the Jews was actually treason because they saw one as the king. That was Caesar himself. And the penalty for treason? was the slow torture of what they called crucifixion. Now, Jesus, if he says yes, if he answers yes to this question, what Pilate's thinking when he thinks king of the Jews? Insurrection against the Roman government? He's guilty, and the trial's over. But once again, Jesus, and we've seen him respond several times this way, he says to him, you have said so. He says, those are your words. That's your terminology. I'm not exactly who you think. And verse 15 takes us this way. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So every year, the Roman authorities would release a Jewish prisoner into freedom, back to their people. Now, why would they do that? Well, this is what we would call being magnanimous. The word magnanimous means showing generosity to help one bear trouble 
calmly, to be generous to someone to help them bear trouble calmly. So when you think about, for you parents, when you torture your children through the oppression and suffering of taking them to the dentist's office, right, or you take them to get their flu shot, and they are not having a good time. You say, I know that, that this feels like torture, so I'm going to help you bear this trouble calmly. Here's a lollipop, right? That, that gets them right through. Or here is the iPad is yours today. No limit on the screen time. Or here's your whole PFD. Like whatever, whatever it takes to calm you down, just please don't cry. Please don't make a scene for mommy and daddy. Um, the Jews, this is Rome going, okay, we know we've been ruthlessly oppressing you for decades now. And so the Jews felt that many of their people had been wrongfully imprisoned. So they let one prisoner go each year. Here is your legal lollipop. And as Pilate, we're going to see in a moment, is he's very interested in keeping the people happy and avoiding an uprising against the Roman authorities. And so what happens here is they had a, then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. A notorious, now what's notorious? What, is that, what does that word mean? It, it's, it's, it means to be well known for something bad. So it's famous, but not for a good thing. So Hitler is notorious. He's famous for something bad. So is Benedict Arnold. He's famous for betraying Americans during the Revolution. And then probably the person who's most well-known for something bad, none other than Justin Bieber, right? <laughs> for really bad music, and that facial hair has got to go, my brother. So, so here is Barabbas, well-known for something bad. What's the bad thing that Barabbas had done? Well, he had actually led an insurrection. That, that he was known as what we would call a rebel or a rabble rouser. An insurrection is an uprising against the current establishment. And so that's exactly what he did. That he actually was guilty of murder, of inciting rebellion. So now he's very bad in the Roman eyes. But to the Jews, he's a hero. He's helping liberate their, their people. Now, Barnabas' name is equally as, or excuse me, Barabbas' name is equally as fascinating. Barabbas, if you break it down, so the first word there is bar. That means son of. So in Matthew 16, when it says, uh, talking about Peter, he's Simon Bar-Jonah. That means he's Simon, son of Jonah. So like, I'm Justin Bar-Scott, right? It's Justin, the son of Scott. And so the word bar, the, the bar part is um, son of, and then Abba, right? And that's not like the, uh, the dancing queen. It's, it's, not, it's not that kind of Abba. This, is, this means father. So the word, and you've heard this in Romans 8, uh, we cry Abba, father. This was actually an intimate term that they would use for essentially daddy or, or father. And so you put those two together, and what do you see? This is son of the father, Pretty straightforward, right? A literal expression. But, but many manuscripts actually even say that, that his name, this, this Barabbas, his first name was Jesus. And so you'd actually have here Jesus, son of the Father. Do you see the parallel here? Do you see what comparison's being made? In verse 17, it says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And so what we see is this intentional comparison as Pilate offers the, the Jews a choice for their yearly release of a prisoner. He says, I can release to you the guilty son of the father, Barabbas, or I can release to you the innocent son of the true father, Jesus Christ himself. And what we know, we know that the crowd, they choose the guilty Barabbas over the innocent one. 
Barabbas is guilty, so are the Jewish leaders. Number three, uh, verse 18, we're going to see Pilate seeing right through the motives of the Jewish leaders. He says, for he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So he, he sees right through their motives. They're pretending to, to be concerned with Jesus overthrowing the Roman government. Like, hey, Pilate, check out this guy. He's an insurrectionist. Like they care. They don't care about the Roman government. He says, this is a sham. Get out of here with your I heart Rome t-shirts, right? I know better than, and your honk if you love centurion bumper stickers, right? You guys are not fans of the Roman Empire. I don't believe it for a minute. And to prove it, he offers them an actual murderous Roman rebel in the place of peace-loving Jesus. And they choose Barabbas. Pilate's called their bluff. They're not concerned about an insurrection. This is their own selfish motivation. And what is it that he says they did it for? Envy. He says, the reason that you have, you have thrown him under the bus is because you don't like this guy. You see him as a threat. You see, they were in the temple, and these leaders were the teachers that everybody was coming to, to sit at their feet and learn. And now, many of those people are going to follow Jesus. The crowds have gone his way, and they're not following them anymore. And they don't like that. And Jesus keeps calling them out for their stuff. Read the book of Matthew. He does not flatter these people. You hypocrites, you blind guides, your pride. And so, they want to be right and in control. And Jesus says, you're neither. You're wrong. You're not in control. I am. And they hate him for it. So what do they do? They stir up the crowd. They they see this group that's gathered here for Passover. It says, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And what are they saying here? It's not us. It's not us. It's the leaders. Or excuse me, it's the crowd. The people are asking for it. And it's the Romans, it's Pilate who killed him. You can't blame us at all, the Jewish leaders say. But we know, we know it's their pride before Jesus' fall. That we know what's going on here. There's blood all over the Jewish leaders' hands. Number four, Pilate is guilty. Pilate is guilty. If Pilate's relationship with the Jews was um, a Facebook status, it would read, it's complicated complicated relationship between the two of them. The the Jewish people that he's been oppressing, um, they've already protested twice. One time he steals from the temple piggy bank when the Roman budget crisis gets pretty low. And then the other time he sets up idols in his very palace, the center of uh, governing in the area, and they riot. And so Pilate pushes back, sending uh, uh, their police force essentially to try to squelch it. And in the process, many Jewish people were killed. So this is complicated. And, and now Pilate has two strikes. Pilate says, I'm, I'm not going to mess up again. I'm a two-strike hitter. I'm not going to miss out on this one. I'm going to get this one right. And on top of that, the, the complicated relationship, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, I had a dream last night, verse 19. Besides, he was sitting on the judgment seat. His wife sent, him a word, sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, that right Man, that innocent man. Why? For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, we don't exactly know the details of what happened and what she was told in this dream, but what we see coming out very clearly is that she's telling him this man's innocent. Now, notice the placement. This is every detail here in Matthew. He doesn't make mistakes. Um, It says, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat. So here's Pilate symbolically sitting on earth's judgment seat over Jesus. But, but what we're seeing here is God, the true judge, speaking through Pilate's wife is speaking of Jesus' innocence. And so now we have his wife and his own conscience 
that are telling him the same thing. Jesus is innocent. Act accordingly. But what does he do? Well, we know that he offered them Barabbas or Jesus. They choose Barabbas. So then he says to them, well, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? That's the Messiah. They all said, let him be crucified. The leaders have gotten to the crowd, haven't they? Verse 23, he said, why? What evil has he done? What crime? You don't have any legit crimes here for him. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. What does Pilate do? So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, uh uh-oh, He's got some PTSD, right? He's seen the riots before. He knows where this goes, and he doesn't want to go back down that road with the people. So he took water. He washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And we know this famous scene where Pilate's washing his hands and saying, I'm innocent. You can't blame me at all, right? There's more blame shifting. It's the Jewish people. This is what they want. I'm just giving them what they want. Pilate's whole aim was to show his own innocence. This isn't my fault. He succumbs to people-pleasing, the fear of man, and false peace. And I don't know about you, but I know the steps that I will go to justify myself. We so badly, so badly, want to declare ourselves innocent, you guys. We want to see ourselves as good and as right. We want to get the approval of the people around us. We want to be loved. So like Pilate, we wash our hands. But of course, the outward washing of his hands does not cleanse his heart. Number five, the crowd is guilty. The crowd is guilty. The crowd responds to Pilate when he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. They all answer, his blood be on us and our children. Now, typically, the saying was, his blood be on you. This was a common curse, right? It's pretty intense. You could try that to somebody someday. Your blood be on you. It's not a very nice thing to say. They cry out, his blood be on us. The crowd, persuaded by the leaders, they are so convinced that Jesus is guilty and that they are innocent, they're essentially saying, let the responsibility of Jesus' death, his blood be on us. We'll own this one. And ironically, what they see here is more injustice. Because they not only say, let his blood be on us, but how do they finish that? And on us our children. Now, if I'm one of the kids in the crowd at this point, I'm like, hey, like, why'd you have to bring me into this cursed thing? I don't want, I don't want blood. Just take a lollipop, kid. Shut your mouth, right? Like, why? Now, now the, the irony here is there is more injustice. Not only are they guilty, but they would never, to put the blood on their children, Deuteronomy 24, God talks about this. He says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Do you hear that? Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So we see more injustice, but they do not realize what they're asking for because the curse that they're asking for becomes that literal fulfillment in AD 70 when the Romans push back against the Jewish rebellion, and there is blood all over the Jewish people. And again, ironically, because they're rebelling against the Romans, the very thing they're accusing Jesus of here, falsely. And this is a reminder for us, man, especially in this, this time, this, this 2020 we talked about, don't get sucked into the mob mentality. Don't just hear the loudest voices. Might is not right. The majority is not right. We don't listen to the screams of the crowd. Through it all, we be still and listen to the voice of God in his word and through his spirit.
And what we see here, Matthew sums it all up by showing that everyone's guilty. I think Matthew's main purpose in this part of the story is to show everyone on the scene except for one is guilty. The Jewish leaders who handed Jesus over to the Romans, they're guilty. Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Remember we said betrayed was just another way to translate. Handed him over, delivered him over. Pilate, the weak, self-protecting people pleaser, totally guilty. The crowd shouting for his blood, guilty. Who killed Davy Moore? Who killed Jesus Christ? They all did. We all did. Paul writes to the Roman people, funny enough, a little while later, he says it this way, he was handed over, there's our expression again, delivered up, handed over, to die. Why? What's the cause and effect? Because of our sins. Now Paul, who's writing that, he wasn't at the scene of the crime. The, most of the Roman Christians he's writing to, they weren't there. You and I, we weren't back in first century AD. We weren't physically there, but we are among the guilty for whom Christ died. And we sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love, and we say the line, It was my sin that held him there. You know, I imagine Barabbas, this, has got to, this is the strangest day of his life. So he wakes up that morning fully expecting to die. And deservedly so, right? He's murdered. He, he has plotted and fought against Rome and led a rebellion. He's literally sitting on death row. He has no rights. He has no arguments. He has no hope. He's guilty. And he hears the crowds screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And I'm think, he, he's fully thinking they're talking about him. And all of a sudden, the dungeon door swings open, and he's kind of blinking into the light as it, as it fills the room. And the guards, they unchain his hands, they unchain his feet, and they look at him and say, you're free to go. What? And on his way out, imagine him seeing in the distance this man who's being beaten and bloodied, and then picks up a cross, very likely the very cross, that Barabbas himself should have been carrying. See, we're not Jesus in this story. We want to be the hero of our own tale, don't we? And we so badly want to be the martyr. We want to be the victim. We are not Jesus in this story, guys. We're Barabbas. We sat, I sat on spiritual death row, completely guilty of rebellion against God, doing my own thing, selfishly and in pride, not worshiping him as he should be, doing my own thing and, and deserving God's eternal wrath and separation. And then I see Jesus, and what do we say? The son of the father being beaten where I should be standing, and hanging on the cross where I should be hanging. And I hear the words as the prison doors swing open wide. You are free to become a son of the Father. 
We see everybody is guilty except for one. Number seven, we see that God, both the Father and the Son, alone is innocent in this story. Jesus Christ himself is the only one who's innocent. Funny enough, the one who's trying to be pegged for insurrection, he never, not in that way, he never revolted against Rome. He never tried to steal Caesar's crown. He never sinned. He never rebelled against the Father. He's the only human being who has never disobeyed the Father. And yet, it is that very obedience to the Father's will that leads him to the cross. You see, ultimately, it is not Pilate that hands Jesus over. It is not the Jewish people. It is not the Gentile or Jewish leaders. It's not Judas. It's not the crowd that hands Jesus over. Ultimately, it's the Father himself. Romans 8 says that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. There's that phrase again, delivered over. Gave him up for us all. And this was prophesied. He said that he was going to. Back to Isaiah 53. We esteemed him, Jesus, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now you think about that for a minute and go, wait a second. So does that mean that God is guilty too? I mean, is, is God, everybody else in this story, we're seeing the injustice and the guilt of them condemning an innocent man. Well, then isn't God guilty and unjust for killing Jesus? In fact, some have said it crassly that this is divine child abuse, that God would do this to his son and to his completely innocent son. How is that just? To spill innocent blood. But this is the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. Look at what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. It says he made Jesus to be sin. Now what does that mean? It means that God placed the sin of all guilty people on Jesus. That Jesus was indeed bearing sin at the moment. But not his own. My sin. Our sin. And so God was just. He was right. Because he wasn't condemning the innocent. He was condemning the guilt on the innocent. Do you see the difference? That Jesus was justly condemned as a sinner, but it wasn't his own sin. It was ours. But it, it gets even better. The verse finishes this way. So that, here's why, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of, of God. And what he's saying is not just that he treated Jesus as if he were our sin, but he treated us as if we were Jesus. As if we were sons and daughters of the Father. You see, what, what Jesus gives us here is not just fine, you don't have to go to hell. What he gives us here is, is the same treatment that he receives as the son of the Father. So how does a good father treat their child? It's the apple of their eye. Their, their delight and their joy, Right? The love and, and the security of that relationship with your Abba, Daddy. And this is why Jesus had to be perfect, right? If he owed a debt, he couldn't pay somebody else's debt. He had to pay his own. 
That's why the guilty Barabbas can't be swapped out for another guilty Barabbas. But we'd say it this way, he who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything. Why? So we who have done everything wrong could be condemned for nothing. That's the good news. That Jesus, the only one in this story who is truly innocent, makes a way for the guilty to be truly innocent in him. This is where we land the plane. The last thing we want to say is that, number eight, we are declared innocent in Jesus. We're declared innocent in Jesus. So you might be thinking, Justin, we came for this nice Sunday morning service, and all that you and Matthew can scream at us is, you're guilty, right? This is not warm, fuzzy time, right? But here's the reality. Until we see and fully believe the extent of our own guilt, the specific sin in our lives, we're not going to see and, and believe the full beauty of Jesus' innocence and work on our behalf. And I, and I see this news as necessary for two different kinds of people in, this, in this, uh, this room this morning. And maybe you identify with one camp today better than the other. And we've probably all been in both. The, the first one would be those who come in here needing to see their guilt. They need to see that, that they've been hand-washing. They've been blame-shifting. They've been screaming, not me. You can't blame me. And trying to declare their own innocence, your own innocence. Excuse-making, blame-shifting, justifying. But then there's some here, man, who they feel their need all too well. That they see their guilt. That they, they feel completely trapped in their shame. And, and, and those in this room who are in that place need to see their innocent position in Jesus. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel neither justifies ourselves and says, no, 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 you're, you actually are innocent. You're not that bad. But neither does it go to the other extreme and, and, and give us no hope over the despair of our guilt. The gospel is freely, freely confessing our guilt and then freely receiving Christ's innocence on our behalf. That's the good news. So we want to be a shout and a crowd, in a, in a sense, that screams like these people, his blood be on us. But what we mean, what we mean by that is, is saying that we are guilty. We are guilty, but then we also say his blood be on us, meaning the covering of Jesus' sacrifice. And it's through his blood that we're washed clean. So we all killed Davy Moore. But, but our Davy is one who declares those who will repent of their sins, of their own guilt, of, of the murderers of himself, he declares them innocent in the very act of that murder. And it's noteworthy to me that in Matthew's gospel, the last words we hear Jesus say in this chapter are to Pilate when he says, you have said so. And now, up until we get to the cross, we don't hear Jesus say another word. This is another fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah 53. It said he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Now, Jesus may not have uttered another word, but he was not silent. Because Hebrews 12 I love, it says that his blood speaks a better word. 
The next thing that he's going to say, we'll see this next week, he, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's the answer to that question? Why did the father turn his face away? Why did the father condemn the innocent one? Well, he was bearing our guilt. And, and we, we could sing the words, it was my sin that held him there. But I wonder if a little bit more accurately it would be to say, it was God's love that held him there. That for our sake, because he loved you and I, and wanted relationship to be restored, that he held Jesus in the place of condemnation and suffering. And instead of us screaming for our own innocence, and don't we get tired of trying to prove that we're okay, that we're good on our own, but instead, let us freely admit our own guilt. And what we want to shout is that my God loves me and that I am innocent in Jesus, the slain lamb. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for sending this one and only son of yours, Jesus, the son of the father, to the cross, that as Jesus became sin for us, we might become the sons of the Father, the daughters of the Father in Him. And Jesus, I thank you for bearing our guilt, for declaring us innocent. So Father, I want to ask today that those that have come in here today hiding behind their own false innocence, trying to make excuses and justify themselves, that they would be convicted of their own sin and guilt, that you would gently, graciously break them, that they killed baby more too. And Father, I ask for those racked with guilt and shame, they would take their eyes off their bloody hands and see not that they're innocent in themselves, but that Jesus fully, sufficiently bore their guilt, and now in his blood, they're washed clean and stand secure as your children forever. And so Father, would you teach us all how to live these new resurrected lives with Jesus? Help us to show us what does it look like to live in the innocence, the blood-bought position of Jesus that just like him and his story, Father, that we would be people who'd be slow to speak and slow to defend ourselves, but instead listen to your word and to quietly, obediently, abidingly do as you tell us to do. Father, help us to trust your heart and your plan for us, that even in the midst of suffering, we would be willing to lay our lives down for those around us, even the people, especially the people who treat us wrong, who speak against us, who ignore us, who shame us, your love, just like with your son, it would, it would hold us in that place. That we, like your son, would become ones that would sacrifice our own lives, our time, our passions, our resources, so that others might come to know their own guilt and the innocence of Jesus. And to walk in the freedom like Barabbas found through his blood that speaks a better word than any of our claims, any of our excuses, any of our weak arguments. And Father, as we turn to worship you in response, we even know that the, the reason you can hear these songs, these, the breath from our lungs, the words come out of our mouth, that we can boldly enter into your throne right now is not because we're innocent in our own selves, but because we're washed into the blood of Jesus and we enter in his name. And so it's in his name that we sing. It's in his name that we pray. It's in his innocent, perfect, sin-bearing, sacrificial name that we come as we are. Amen.